That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And also, I have no idea how to read it. So I'm very impressed that you can. Honestly, if I would look, describe this like alien cryptographic, I, I don't even know. And welcome to Underscore. Underscore is a podcast that explores the modern world of music from a musician's point of view. Here, we debate the intersections of art and life, share our best music picks, and invite cutting-edge artists to our round table to see what makes them tick. I'm Thomas Kotcheff, a composer and pianist here in L.A. And I'm Chrysanthi Tan, a composer, violinist, singer-songwriter, also in L.A. Underscore is a show that celebrates innovation, ideas, and discovery. You won't find Top 40 here, but Air and Thundercat and Johan Johansson are all fair game. Today, we're going to debate whether cell phones belong at concerts, then of course, leave you with our current music obsessions. But first, we're going to chat with a guest who is, quite frankly, the sort of cellist my violin teacher used to warn me about. Derek Stein is one of the most fearless cellists on the music scene. I mean, he has this ability to extract incredibly strange and surprising noises from his instrument. And he is here with us today to reveal his artistic process and, of course, demonstrate some of those weird sounds for us. Hi, Derek. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We just heard an excerpt of you performing Ta Filat Hat Derek. Was that pronounced correctly? Very close. Uh, a cello concerto written for you by composer Mark Lowenstein. Derek, you are one of my favorite cellists, and we're very honored to hang out with you today. Just to brag about you a little bit, the Los Angeles Times describes you as compellingly, vehemently virtuosic. You were also a founding member of Narwhalaby, which is a quartet for clarinet, trombone, cello, and piano, the first of its kind in the U.S. You also play in the experimental classical group Wild Up. And to top it all off, you are a member of the Vitamin String Quartet, which of course is very famous for its pop and rock covers. So these are all so different, these projects. Right off the bat, let's go back to that excerpt, and can you talk about that beginning sound? Was it foot stomping? It was foot stomping, yes. For the opening of that movement and in several other spots throughout the movement, I am playing cello and stomping my foot, and Lonestein wrote two staves for those sections. One staff where I'm playing the cello, that I'm reading the cello music, and then below another staff where it tells me where to stomp my foot. Wow. Whoa, so it's literally two lines of music that you're reading at the same time, yes. which does not normally happen mm-hmm. with cello. Yeah, in the piano world, we love two staves. Cello world, usually one. Yeah, though I will say that uh, over the last several years, I have encountered more music that I have to play and read more than one line. Wow. Just to clarify, staff is basically those five lines that you see mm-hmm. and where you learn what the notes are. We usually see one staff. So that's this is quite a bit. I was very fortunate growing up to also be taking piano lessons as well as cello lessons. So, you know, even though I'm not a pianist in any way, I at least became used to that. And it doesn't totally terrify me when I see it and I have to do it on cello. So being a modern cellist and reading these two staves, and we know one of them can be foot stomping, what else would be on the second stave? <laughs> I played a piece 
not too long ago by a composer named Andrew Greenwald, who is uh, based in New York. And the piece that I played by him was written for my quartet in our Wallaby, which we mentioned earlier. And the cello line had three staffs. Mm. And one was for what I do with the bow, because he has very specific instructions on how, on how the bow is used. One was for left hand position, and then the other was for specific fingers on the left hand and what they should be doing at any given moment. So, for instance, the middle staff, which uh, indicates left hand position, may indicate that my third and second finger should be down in whatever interval it may be. And the one below it may indicate that I am tapping with the first and fourth finger and like where around the, that double stop that the second and third finger is holding, I am, should be tapping. I haven't looked at the score in a while, but I believe that's the that's the correct lineup of the staffs. So just to translate that, basically it's finger gymnastics. Yes. It's quite an athletic way to play the cello. So with this uh, notation, does it achieve more than what a, quote, normal notation that we see in Bach and Mozart can get? I don't know if it's a more or less thing. It's completely different. I mean, it's, it would be so difficult to compare the sounds that I get out of that piece than a person would get playing Bach, for instance, because it's just a completely different soundscape. It's not concerned with uh, melody or harmony. It's more concerned with texture and percussion and rhythm. So I am, I am holding in my hands this score, and I wish uh, we could figure out a way to show this thing, because it is... Well, we'll, how would you describe this? Can we, we'll can put we a screenshot picture, this? We'll put a picture in the show notes, if that's cool with you. Sure. That is beautiful. That is beautiful, and also I have no idea how to read it, so I'm very impressed that you can. Honestly, if I would look, describe this like alien cryptographic... It, I, I don't even know. I, I don't know how to describe it either. It's, you just have to look at it. Yeah, it, we'll, we'll put this in for sure. So we know you can do all of these weird, experimental, new things and make all of these sounds with your cello like this, and, and do stomping and things like that. But what is the point? Like, why bother? Is it just to be unique? Why do composers do this? You know, when I was in college, I before I met a real-life composer... It didn't occur to me that people were still actively writing music, mm-hmm. which I know sounds crazy, but that's really what, where I was at. Um, I think some people look at music and they look at or they listen to music and they listen to all different types. And there's so much going on out there in the world. I mean, even if you just listen to Top 40, the types of sounds that you hear and the music the instruments that are used or the you know the non-instruments that are used you think like well there can't be there couldn't possibly be anything more but part of what attracts me to this kind of modern or experimental or you know whatever word you want to place on it this type of music is the fact that there is so much more and that these composers are finding the most interesting innovative and creative ways of getting sounds that you've never heard before out of instruments that have been around for hundreds of years in some instances. Can you show us some of these things, Derek? Yeah, of course. Derek is pulling out his cello right now, 
and getting it ready. Um, do you mind showing us that finger bow thing you just explained from yeah. that piece? What was the piece again? Yeah, absolutely. It's a piece by Andrew Greenwald, and it's titled A Thing Made Whole. And this is the one where the score, which is a, the, the sheet of music, looks really hairy like that alien grid. Alien cryptograph. So he's going to play a really short clip from it. You know, it's amazing that that score sounds like that. Totally. I just love that. You know, it's like what we do, but it's amazing. There's mm-hmm. a um, excerpt from this piece, a live performance that Narwhalaby gave on the Narwhalaby SoundCloud. And it's just an excerpt of the, of the full piece, but you can hear all the stuff that the piano and the bass clarinet and the trombone are doing along with all the stuff I'm doing. And the, the sound world that he creates is incredible. Cool. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. It's incredible how much work and preparation goes into making a sound like that. As an audience member, I would have no idea that that's what you're looking at and interpreting. Absolutely. So, wow. All right. Give us one more. What was that? Uh, That's what's typically known as a whale sound or a seagull gliss. One of the best examples or one of my favorite examples I can point to of that being used in a piece is a piece by George Crumb called Vox Ballinae, and which translates to Song of the Whales. And the piece is for electric flute, electric cello, and electric piano. And uh, George Crumb writes in this amazing theatrical element where the performers all wear black masks during the performance. And the whole stage is supposed to be lit with blue light. And that when it's performed exactly to George Crumb's specifications, that's the situation. Black masks, blue light, everything's amplified. I need to see a video of this. We're going to put a video of this in the show notes, in fact, if we can find one. Yes. It's an amazing piece. And the piano is prepared and the flute and the cello use a just a plethora of extended techniques for each of their instruments. And... It's a beautiful piece. Amazing. Extended technique basically means unconventional, unorthodox, non-traditional methods of playing your instrument. Yes. That's the Wikipedia definition. So if playing the instrument is just the normal way, extended means going beyond that somehow. And um, the rules of what extended means is, I guess, a free-for-all, you know? I often describe, when when I talk about it with my students, I often describe it as all the stuff you're teacher told you not to do in the beginning. Exactly. But all the stuff you learn not to do when you're learning to play your instrument, then when you start learning extended things, it's all that stuff. Or not all of it, but a good amount of it. Exactly. And that's why you're the type of cellist my violin teacher warned me about. <laughs> all right, let's hear another uh, example. That's super cool. That sounds like Weezer to me. Okay, I can, I, I can get behind that. Describe what you were just doing. Tapping with my left hand, my fingers on my left hand, to get that kind of percussive yet pitched sound. And then with my bow, I am simply softly tapping the hair against the lowest string on the instrument. 
Okay, let's break that down. By pitched, you mean there's kind of there's a note coming out. There's a note coming out for each time I tap my left. There's a the note, finger. but also a percussion hit at right. the same time, and that's because you're tapping on the string. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. Kind of like a tar hammer on, you know, very like similar Aerosmith style. <laughs> All right, let's do a simpler one. Can you just tap on your cello, like hit the cello in various places, so we can hear what it sounds like? Yeah, absolutely. Is that something that is pretty often used? I wouldn't say it's pretty often used, but occasionally I will come across a score or a piece that I'm playing that asks me to use the cello as a percussive instrument. And sometimes it will specify where to hit the instrument. Oftentimes some composers will have studied or they have a cello that they can use or you know they have talked to other cellists and see what's you know what areas of the cello make you know provide different types of sounds and other times it's just kind of like pick a spot and do something percussive interesting all right last one okay that noise was very unexpected yeah it's amazing the sound that that thing gets basically i'm just bowing uh the tailpiece and the tailpiece uh, all string instruments have them. It basically uh, is where the strings connect at the bottom, and it's connected to the bottom of the instrument where, you know, on a cello, the end pin is, the the uh, metal piece that comes out that goes into the floor, or like, for instance, a violin where the button is at mm-hmm. the bottom. Basically, it's a piece of wood. Yes, because t- it sounded like there was a string there, but there was no string there. No, no string there. It just resonates like one, though. Yeah. Amazing. We are going to move to the lightning round very soon, but before that, I just want to ask you about Vitamin String Quartet, since that is a very popular pop rock group that is very different from the things you just showed us. I want to ask specifically about audiences. How do your audiences differ, and just do you see any similarities within those projects? Well... The similarities that exist only exist because I have made them exist. So I've been playing with the group in a almost strictly live setting since 2012. I kind of tested the waters at first to see like what sort of things I could get away with. And I would just like every now and then I would throw something in and just see what the reaction was. And it was always positive. And so... Uh, even though, I mean, I don't employ a large amount of extended techniques when I'm doing uh, vitamin string, string quartet, every now and then I'll throw something in. And that's usually in the rehearsal process. And the reaction is always great. And I just go with it. And it's either a, a tap or a percussive thing, or, you know, I will hit the strings with the wood of my bow. Yeah, it's always it's worked out really well. The audiences couldn't be more different. Playing contemporary music or, you know, avant-garde, experimental, whatever you want to call it, I have done many shows where there are more people on stage than there are in the audience. 
but this this contemporary music, this experimental music, it has a pretty narrow audience, and most of the people who want to go see it also are involved in it, and so oftentimes the numbers don't add up the right way. But um, with Vitamin String Quartet, on our last trip out, we played two shows at Rockwood Music Hall in New York, and both of them sold out. It's not like a huge space, but there were a couple hundred people there. And the one time we played in L.A., which was in 2014, we played at the Troubadour, and that was a sellout crowd. It's hard to avoid talking about a novelty with this group because there definitely is an element of novelty because you have a string quartet playing music that is not for string quartet. That being said, Vitamin String Quartet has a crazy following and they have really come out on the live shows that we've done. Yeah, you have a massive following. In fact, anytime someone wants to reference a pop cover done with classical instruments, the it's always, every time, Vitamin String Quartet, Vitamin String Quartet. There are other groups that are now coming out doing this kind of stuff. Oh, for sure, but it felt like you were we paved, the first. The Vitamin String Quartet paved the way for that, I, I feel like, in a lot of ways. I mean, there were probably groups that did it before Vitamin String Quartet, but not exclusively. All right, now let's zip through this lightning round. Great. So um, at Lightning Round, we asked the guests the same six questions. The first one is, what genre is your music? Humorous. Okay. The genre of my music is bizarre at times. Confusing, I guess, is a good word. Mind-opening. I like that. That's great. I like, never mind, heard, I like mind-opening. Never heard those as genres before. Performance ritual. Wild Up has this fantastic pre-concert ritual where we all get in a circle and we put our hands in the middle and we do a chant together and then we go play our show and it's like the most morale building thing like even if you're in a bad mood right before the show once that happens and I feel like it's a spiritual and mood cleansing thing that happens and then you can go play the show get you pumped yeah I love it um, a modern tech tool that's extremely helpful to your practice uh, iPad iPad Pro I don't want to be uh, gimmicky or anything, but I use this thing for all of my performances now, and it has just completely revolutionized playing contemporary music. Uh, when in the past, there was always we always had to find some way to negotiate how all these pages were going to fit on the music stand. So then. You know, we would use two music stands or we would use bigger music stands or we would use stands with uh, extenders on the side. And then it was how are we going to when are we going to turn the pages? Should it be double sided, single sided? Because there's so many pages. Mm -hmm. And now, for instance, in Narwhalaby, all four of us play off iPads. You know, it doesn't take up any time in, in, of our rehearsal or of our planning anymore. We'd make our own scores. From the scores that we get from the composers, we create our own versions of them. For each one of us, we put it on the iPad, and it's no problems anymore. You're the second person that said iPad so far. A failure that turned out for the best. Okay, so when I was in high school, I went to St. Louis, Missouri to audition for Eastman School of Music, and I bombed. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, easily one of the worst performances I've ever given in my life. But after that, my parents took me to a string shop, 
And we found the cello I have now. Got it from a string shop in St. Louis, which I've been playing on ever since. And after that, I went to my Arizona State audition and nailed it. So I think Arizona State was a better fit for me than uh, Eastman would have been. Yeah, I also bombed Eastman audition. There you go. Yeah. All right. Um, something besides music that you're obsessed with right now. Oh, man. Uh, at the risk of sounding super geeky, I love all of these Marvel comic book movies that have been coming out. I saw Black Panther on the Thursday night last week, and it was incredible. I enjoyed every moment of it, and I can't necessarily take pride in what that film has done because I'm just a white guy. But at the sh- at the show that I went to, there were multiple people, multiple black people there who were dressed in traditional African um, attire and they I mean and they didn't spare anything I mean it, it looked incredible and it was so inspiring is the word to see these people out and like what they may not usually feel comfortable wearing but then they wear it to go see a show to go see a movie it was just really incredible and last but not least a piece of art that changed your life a piece of art that changed my life. Uh, my freshman year in college, I went to see my cello professor give a recital, and he played a piece by a composer named Penderecki. He's a Polish composer. He's still alive. And the title of the piece is Capriccio for Siegfried Palm. And Siegfried Palm was a cellist who was kind of at the height of his career in the 60s and the 70s, and he was on the cutting edge of music at that time. If I showed you the score, I didn't bring it with me, unfortunately, but if I showed it to you, it would uh, have a similar, you would have a similar reaction to the score I showed you earlier, the Andrew Greenwald score, because it looks like modern art. But Penderecki does this really interesting thing where instead of searching for notation, which may represent the sound that he wants, he invents his own notation. And that kind of kickstarted my way into contemporary music even though that piece was written in the 60s and like I, I don't think of you know nowadays 60s is like okay that was how many years ago you know, 50 years ago and that's not new music anymore but um that changed my life because it put me on a path very cool thank you so much Derek where can people find you online uh, my website is DerekStein.com I have a SoundCloud which is SoundCloud.com slash DerekSteinCello and then my Instagram and Twitter handle is the same, at Derek Steincello. And I think that's everything. Fantastic. To wrap this up, we're going to listen to an excerpt of Derek Stein with the Vitamin String Quartet performing Radiohead's Burn the Witch. time for our weekly debate. This segment is called Counterpoint, and it's where we discuss hot topics relevant to the music world. This week, we're pondering whether cell phones belong at concerts, and we are thrilled that our guest, Derek, is sticking around for the conversation. So, who's going to start? Chrysanthi? Ooh, okay, I'll start this time. 
I am pro cell phones at pro. concerts. Who disagrees with me? I, I am mostly pro. Okay. I'm mostly pro. Why don't you say why you're pro first? Well, I will start this out by saying most people, I think, are anti. And the reasons to be anti... Um, are, I guess, obvious. And the reasons to be... Yeah, the reasons to be anti-cell phones are obvious. And it's because of distraction. It's maybe because of the backlit screen in a dark hall can be distracting. You know, I, I talked to some friends about it, and one person said, I didn't practice hundreds of hours and fine-tune this performance for you to record it at 32 kilobits per second and share that really bad recording with the world to see. So there's just so many, there's so many anti that I understand. But for pro, as a performer at least, I love when people capture footage of my performances you know, it's hard to get audiences sometimes as an independent musician. So if someone captures a photo or a video, even if it's crappy, it just makes me feel like they were engaged or thought it was something worth capturing. I'll say where I'm definitely against what's done nowadays is that um, most concert halls, like the big ones, you can't have your cell phone out, period. No pictures, no nothing. Even before the concert starts, you can't photograph the stage. And that to me is a bummer. Like, we should be able to photograph the stage and say, I'm at this concert. It's super cool. Everyone come on over and join me here and promote this thing, you know? Yeah. It just it changes the vibe, I think. What do you think? I feel like we have to be – not we. I can't speak for these people because I'm not one of them. But whoever is promoting the concert, whoever's putting on the concert, whoever manages the space, the concert hall, no matter how big, no matter how small, we as a people have become – almost attached to these things like the the phones for instance like they kind of are a part of us whether we not we want to admit it or not and some people are are not as attached as others but i feel like there's always a certain amount of attachment and i think as soon as a concert hall says no phones allowed in like we're going to check your phones you got to go to the coat check and put your phone there there might be a little bit of fight back on that or there might be a, a few people or maybe more who say well then I'm not coming to the concert if I can't have my phone on me I feel like as a performer you know there's any number of things that can happen that could potentially distract you part of being a performer is being able to just deal with it and not let it distract you or be able to you know get over that distraction or, you know, feel the distraction, but not let it affect you, you know, to a certain extent, that's true for everyone. We should be that way. And it's not to say that we should live in a world where, okay, well, I guess this is just the new normal now and we have to um, just put up with it. But like, that's kind of what it is. And I was in New York a couple of weeks ago and I saw a friend of mine named Gigi who plays guitar give a recital at Carnegie Hall and halfway through her second piece, someone's phone went, went off mm. and like, that's the last place you expect it. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it happened. You know what? It is a bummer when cell phones go off. I do agree that phones should absolutely be silenced, but I also am thinking now that you say if people were actually beholden to lock their cell phones away in coat check, I feel like people, especially in 2018, would be concerned for security, Mm -hmm. for being out of touch with their family in case there's an emergency. I mean, there are so many reasons why I would just want to have my cell phone on me, even if I'm not going to check it. And honestly, if I'm engaged in a concert, I probably won't. Like, I can regulate myself. 
if I want to take a photo or video um, and that, how that helps me experience the moment better, then I want to be able to do that without feeling shame. Yeah. You know? So where we're at is cell phones, yes, but... Distractions, no. no. Yeah. yeah. But within, within reason, it's like, pull it out. I mean, I guess the opposite would be a rock concert where everyone's phone's out, they're Snapchatting, they're Instagramming, they're filming, they're, and they're sharing it to everyone, right? Yes, but a lot of rock concerts and pop concerts now are banning them as well. Really? Well, yeah. I've experienced, and I, I've experienced it personally, I've seen clips or examples online where, like, whoever's performing, the artist says, okay, I'm doing this thing for you guys. You, you know, put your phones down. Experience it. And I was so lucky to be able to see Missy Elliott do a set at FYF Fest, the last FYF Fest at Exposition Park. And at a certain point, she did that. She said, all right. Stood there. I'm not doing going on until everyone puts their cell phones away. And, like, everybody did it because everyone wanted to see her. But I saw some kind of people with a grimace on their face putting their cell phones away and so it's awesome when the artists do that but it makes some people feel uncomfortable like you just said like you don't want to be shamed yeah I, I spoke to a photographer too who actually said when I photograph or film something I focus more it's like her way of processing events interesting and so I wouldn't want to take that away from someone you know, right. but also, you know, that's Missy Elliott. That's someone who doesn't necessarily need that free publicity of no. of their fans for someone like probably all of us. I mm -hmm. mean, for mo for many musicians, even major artists, they get a boost from people sharing their things, even just to text to their friend. Then it's like, you know, I know it's not the best video, but damn, I wish I were at that concert next time I'm going to go. I Help mean, us something. build this. Definitely. Yeah. Before we wrap this up, I want to mention something called Yonder. It's an app. Have you heard of it? Mm -mm. Yonder is an app where you basically put your phone in a lockable pouch that will automatically unlock when you take it to a designated phone checking station. And oh. artists and venues can, I think, purchase. It's like a pouch for every single attendee. Like when you enter the, the arena or something, you have to put your phone in a pouch. And then you enter like a phone-free area and then that's when your case will unlock. That kind of scares me, but it's that's definitely wild. but it's I, definitely a thing a lot of major major artists are doing now. I think I read an article recently about a school district somewhere who has implemented this at their middle and high schools and they say that before they did this, you walk down the school, you know, the hallways in the school even between classes and like there's not much going on because everyone's looking at their phone. And now it's like completely changed. Everyone's talking to each other. There's more discussion. There's there isn't that fight over why are you looking at your cell phone, put your cell phone away or give it to me. I'm going to keep it to the end of the day. That's very interesting. Very interesting school. That Yeah. Wow. So in we're on schools, both sides here of the coin. Yeah. Pro in schools, and con. This would be a whole other side of it. But anyway. Well, I'm not against it. I think it's a great idea. I yeah. just thought it was interesting. It is interesting. The, indeed. Taking away the, the cell phone. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, that is where we're going to leave it for right there. And thanks for joining us, Derek. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was so fun talking to you. So, listeners, what do you think? 
How do you feel about mobile phones at concerts? Love, hate, somewhere in between? Feel free to email us at info at underscore dot FM, tweet us at underscore FM, or find us on Instagram at underscore FM. We also have a Facebook group called Underscore Society, where you can connect with other listeners, vote on future topics, and of course, give us your music suggestions. Just follow the link in our show notes to join the group, or just look up Underscore Society on Facebook. It is a closed group, but the price of entry is just to recommend us a song. Before we end today, it's time to leave you with something old, new, borrowed, and blue, where we share our current musical obsessions. Old. I'm going with this old composer. Old is in air quotes. Old composer. Um, born in 1893. His name is Ivan Vishnegradsky. And in our world, um, the insider's world, again, air quotes are coming up. It's an air quote kind of situation. Um, he is unknown, not a known composer, um, but he is the grandfather of microtonal writing. Microtonal music is um, where you're writing with notes and scales that are in between the normal notes that we are used to hearing. If normally the difference between two notes would be like, da-da, microtonal would be the space between those two notes. Yes. So it would be like, da yeah. And it sounds wrong to people, like even today. Yeah, it sounds um, totally foreign and wild. And it's so awesome that this composer, who has had a kind of a recent resurgence, writes this music that sounds like almost in the style of older music, mm-hmm. but with a scale that is nowhere near what we're used to hearing. Gotcha. And a lot of music from other cultures that are not like North American or European will play things with microtones that, you know, sound weird or out of tune to our Western ears, but they're really not. It's just different notes. Yes. I will uh, pick some Vishnagradsky pieces and stick them in this week's playlist. Now you have something new. Something new. Uh, for me, something new this week is Vicky Chow. She's uh, an amazing pianist. She's the pianist in Bang on a Can All-Stars, which is one of the premier music ensembles in the world. And her new recording, which uh, came out very recently, is of Michael Gordon's Sinatra. And I um, heard Vicky play this piece live a year ago, and it was literally one of the hardest pieces I've ever heard performed. It was 15 minutes of the most difficult, non-conventional arpeggios up and down the piano. It was a technical tour de force, and she's, I think, the only person in the world who can do it. So check it out, even if you're just sheerly curious to see what this incredibly hard piece sounds like. Um, And Chrysanthi is doing something borrowed. All right. Well, it's the anniversary month of this remix album that I love called We're New Here. It's by Jamie XX and Gil Scott Heron. And if you don't know Gil Scott Heron, he was a soul and jazz poet who was famous for his spoken word performances. He released an album of spoken word called I'm New Here. And then the following year... British electronic producer Jamie XX remixed that album with his permission. So the result is this electronica dubstep UK garage style plus spoken word album. It's really awesome. I recommend the tracks. I'm new here, home, running, and New York is killing me. It may be crazy, but I'm the closest thing I have to voice reason.
Chrysanthi always finds the coolest stuff. But Aww. like every time you, you do one of these segments, I'm always like, I have to check that out. <laughs> well, that's the idea. Um, and something blue. All right. This has been bumming me out. I haven't been connecting with the musical selections in ice skating this Olympic season mm. as much as usual. Specifically, Maria Sotskova from Russia skated to an orchestral arrangement of Claire de Lune, which is a very famous piano piece by Claude Debussy. The arrangement totally didn't work for me. It was fully with for a full orchestra, and it was faster. But that made me think about how bigger and faster doesn't always mean better. Like, just because the piano, the original piano solo is smaller and just for one instrument, I actually think it works much better. And then the bright side of that is... There have been some standout routines. Because I haven't been connecting with a lot of them, it's made the good ones stand out more. For example, Kayara Sokomoto's Free Skate to the Amelie soundtrack was awesome. Sorry, Kayori. Also, um, Alina Zagatova's Free Skate was choreographed really nicely to music from Don Quixote by Leon Minkus. Also, Underscore Society member Sandra alerted me to a Japanese figure skating team who skated to music from an anime series called Yuri on Ice, which is a TV show about figure skating. Music on ice, on ice, double ice. It's totally. Awesome. As per usual, we will list everything mentioned in the show notes if you want to check them out. And you can also check out our playlist, which includes the songs we mentioned today. Also, cello music recommended by Derek Stein. I can assure you his suggestions do not sound like Bach cello suites. And that does it for today's episode of Underscore, the podcast that dives deep into the modern world of music from the musician's point of view. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to hearing from you on Instagram and Twitter at Underscore FM. And also be sure to join our closed Facebook group, Underscore Society, if you want to dive even deeper and connect with other listeners. Yes, connect with us and send us your music suggestions. Once again, you've been listening to Underscore. I'm Chrysanthi Tan. I'm Thomas Kachev. And we will see you next time. 